Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. There has been a snowball effect following Prime Minister Trudeau's comments about the COVID-19 being a chance for a great reset. Are politicians perpetuating baseless conspiracy theories? In order to prevent the spread of COVID-19, more than 3.9 billion people worldwide have been told to stay home. But for a third of the world's urban dwellers, that's not a helpful command because they don't have a home to go to. We'll talk about a great article that's going to talk all about that. And a medical doctor and health policy expert, Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid, joins us to discuss the University Hospital outbreak in London and vaccine hesitancy. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's an interesting phenomenon going on in Ottawa, and well, actually on social media right across the country. And uh, it has to do with some phraseology, I guess, the Prime Minister has used a couple of times, and using the phrase, the Great Reset. Uh, he made mention of this, of course, at a speech he, made, he did to the United Nations a little while ago, and also at a World Economic Forum, uh, talking about an opportunity for us to reset the, the economies and, and deal with some of the social issues that are going on. It's a phrase that uh, a lot of people on the right have now grasped and are, are using uh, to their advantage, uh, and some suggesting using it to establish a number of, of different uh, conspiracy theories. So where are we on this? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Global News reporter Rachel Gilmore has done a lot of research into this, uh, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about this. Rachel, thank you so much for the time. Uh, interesting piece uh, and an interesting phenomenon that's developing, uh, and uh, the whole phraseology here about uh, the Great Reset, uh, if Again, depending on which newspapers you read, which commentators you talk to, uh, some people look at it as an opportunity for new hope, or others are saying this is all a major plot to take over the world. Where are we on this? So basically, it all started out as a very, honestly, if anything, boring <laughs> document from, <laughs> uh, from the World Economic Forum. It was very, like, run-of-the-mill um, proposals for how to make the world, um, in their mind, a better place. So they, they came out with this um, this sort of idea that in their meeting in Davos next year, they're going to chat about how to use the opportunity that is presented by the um, pandemic to kind of re-engineer and reimagine societies in a way that tackles things like poverty and climate change and all of those big issues that people talk about. Um, so a lot of kind of elites have been a part of this conversation, if you want to use that term. Um, Justin Trudeau has spoken about it. We have the uh, the Prince of Wales chatting about it, too. <laughs> so very, very high profile people. Um, and because it kind of ticks all of those boxes, something that is a really innocuous, um, not at all really dangerous idea has kind of um, triggered a response from more conspiratorially minded people who see this as a global elite kind of grabbing onto um, this pandemic as an opportunity to impose their nefarious plot to either, there's a few different ideas about it. Some people say it's going to be a socialist society. Others say that it's going to be them just reimagining the world in a way that would benefit the wealthy and their friends. Um, and some of them even go so far as to say that it's a planned pandemic to give them this opportunity. Of course, all of that is baseless, but that seems to be uh, kind of the, the common thread throughout the, uh, the what's circulating on the Internet right now. But, you know, this, to a certain extent, Rachel, kind of mirrors what we saw during the uh, the presidential election over the last little while, didn't we? I mean, all you have to do is start a, a rumor, you know, about voter fraud, uh, you know, it's a hoax, all this sort of stuff. And, and them that want to believe it are believing it. They not only believe it, but they enhance it. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, what turned into a snowball is now an avalanche. 
Exactly. And that's sort of what I kept hearing from the experts I chatted to. And uh, the prime minister also kind of touched on this as well, is when people are vulnerable or people are afraid or there's something really big going on, you know, such as an election where people are feeling really heated or in this case, it's a pandemic where people are scared. There's a lot going on. People are dying. It's, it's a scary time. People look for answers and start to see kind of trends where there actually aren't really any. Um, so people kind of latched on to, in this instance, this idea of a great reset. And what the experts were kind of saying is that this can kind of make them feel a little bit safer. Um, and these things can really grow in these kinds of, um, in these sorts of scenarios where people are afraid. Um, so it's definitely something that we've seen before, and I'm sure it's something that we'll see again, too. Well, listen, we saw it after 9-11, you know, when all of a sudden there were restrictions put on travel, etc. And uh, and we see the same thing happening here, because I've seen some of the social media posts you referred to in the piece uh, from Global that uh, uh, that they're looking at this not as a pandemic that's taking lives, but this is a contrivance by the powers that be to try to control us and take away our rights. And and there's a there's a very, very strong theme on social media about that, isn't there? There is absolutely, you know, there's there's quite a few tweets out there where people are talking about um, they're kind of ticking all of the classic conspiracy theory boxes. You know, you're seeing things like the New World Order and all of these kinds of ideas where um, there's a kind of another version of society where there is this evil global elite. And uh, you see it all over Twitter. There's there's so many tweets. Some of them have thousands and thousands of likes as well. And that's why it gets so dangerous when you know, political figures um, mention the sort of the same language. And, you know, um, it, it's kind of all grown into something that whether they intend to be a part of it or not, um, any politician, whatever party using this language could inadvertently sort of fuel those tweets to continue and kind of snowball into something bigger. I, all this has to be just rolling around in his grave here. I mean, because this is the brave new world theory, isn't it? That, you know, they're going to destroy everything here and, and you know, we're just going to be minions that are just going to follow along and do whatever we're told <laughs> without anything going on here. Uh, I mean, the, and, and, and it expands, too, as you mentioned in the piece. Uh, even the phrase that, that Joe Biden used during his campaign and continues to use about build back better, which which I think a lot of people, uh, or sensible people maybe, uh, simply construed as, yeah, you know, the economy's in shambles, let's build it back even better than it was. Now they're saying that's part of this theory. This is this is that's part of this conspiracy theory. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's sort of a um, the conspiratorially minded brain seems to sort of look for trends wherever they can find them, and any sort of vague language seems to be something that they latch onto. That's something a few experts told me is that when you use these words that you know are big words that can kind of be misinterpreted or viewed in an evil way. Um, people tend to kind of run with that. So something like build back better, it leaves open for interpretation what better means. And even though it's in every case that I've seen, generally a very boring proposal of any particular party's idea of what they want to uh, see, which direction they want to see the world go in. And, and it's never some, some sort of evil plot. Um, you know, people kind of run with that because it's so open for interpretation, as most political slogans are. <laughs> Well, and as you mentioned in the piece, <laughs> I mean, I'm surprised it's taken off to the degree that it has, because like I say, this all started with a, a rather innocuous comments the Prime Minister made at a UN speech. Rachel, nobody pays attention to those things. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, ever since Khrushchev banged his shoe on the floor in 1962, nobody listens to these things. And all of a sudden, to pull that out of the text and say, aha, 
I, it's, it's like they were looking for something in the piece they could gravitate onto. Uh, but what I guess, as you mentioned in the piece that you wrote for Global, Playing with Fire, uh, the concerning part about this is the opposition parties have grabbed onto this now, too. Yeah, and so, I mean... Well, one particular, that... it's the Conservative Party. <laughs> I, I've... Yeah, so so basically, um, Pierre Polyev has tweeted twice, um, hashtag stop the Great Reset, and, you know, has sort of um, <clears throat> used... He's, he's using that terminology to criticize what Justin Trudeau said um, because he talked about this rather innocuous document, which, you know, it is fully within Pierre Polyev's right as the opposition to oppose those um, those documents. And, and he says that he's, you know, he's not participating in this conspiracy theory and he's simply mounting that criticism. But, you know, one thing that the experts said was that... Um, even if it's inadvertent, the danger lies in the misinterpretation of the terminology that he's using. So when he says, you know, hashtag stop the Great Reset, while he may intend to just be mounting a criticism of the liberal government, as opposition parties do, it's their job, um, conspiratorially minded people can take that and just kind of run with it and say, see, look, there's a politician who is uh, who believes in the same thing I do. And uh, regardless of whether he actually does, um, they can kind of run with that and it, it can cause a big issue. And, you know, and then the other difficulty is that when um, when you look at people's comments, for example, Trudeau's UN speech, um, you have to quote it in context. You know, he, he says his sort of, he touches on the major points of how he hopes to reimagine society and it's issues like climate change and global poverty. But sometimes when you see him quoted, that's left out and they just focus on him saying re-engineering society, which sounds scary when you just hear it on its own and without context. And people can really run with that. And that's kind of where the danger lies and where I think politicians, you know, need to be careful. And that's what the experts kept saying is you have to be conscious. Um, if there are conspiracy theories out there, it's important to just be aware of um, of how the language being used, whether it's by Trudeau or by Polyev or, you know, by anyone um, can fuel those theories. Well, and yeah, going all the way back to the title, I guess, of the piece that you wrote here, Playing with Fire, as uh, some of the experts told you, uh, Polyev may well just be playing politics here. And that uh, uh, there's probably some strong evidence that that's the case. But when you start, uh, you know, throwing stuff out there that you know those right-wing conspiracy theorists uh, are going to gravitate to you don't know what kind of you know pandora's box you're opening this is remember when they asked trump about who's QAnon? He said, i don't know i just know that they like me and then all of a sudden you see that going up on social media i mean it, it's uh, it's incendiary if you let this thing get out of control isn't it yeah, and I, I suppose that's sort of the, the difficulty in politics is you are constantly navigating a minefield where the comments you make can be taken by any particularly interested party and, you know, and misconstrued or used in different ways. But, um, you know, there is a certain extent to which, you know, the experts were saying that politicians should have a responsibility, especially in this day and age, to be conscious of the, the, the theories that are out there, if there are major ones, you know, for example, QAnon, that's, that's a very well-known, um, you know, conspiracist group. And uh, I think uh, so. one thing that we kept hearing uh, as I was doing these interviews is that uh, in this day and age, it's important not only for the individual to be critical in what they're reading, but also for those who are holding these kind of authority positions to be aware of how the things that they say could actually inadvertently kind of step into a, a step on a, a landmine and just kind of cause this whole explosion of, of, uh, 
of conspiracy and, and it can actually harm society in some ways. When I, one expert told me at least that he's written a whole book on how this can erode public trust in government and in public health officials, for example. And, you know, if people don't trust our public health officials right now, that's a huge issue because we are facing a global pandemic and uh, people need to be able to have faith in, in what's being directed at them. So there is a real sort of danger to, um, you know, any politician of any party not being careful in the terminology that they use at, at exactly. a time like this especially great uh, great piece rachel thanks so much great reporting on this and uh, they can check it out on the global news site and uh, it's very insightful and gives us some perspective on this thanks so much for the time today oh thank you for having me bill i appreciate take it take care rachel gilmore global news online reporter you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml I want to talk about one of the key elements that has been a problem for many, many years, and like so many other things, it's a problem that has been exacerbated by COVID-19, and that's housing and affordable housing. And we've seen the results of that in London and Hamilton, of course, with tent encampments that were set up. Uh, City Hall in front of Hamilton right now has a, another uh, a camp that's set up there, a protest that's set up with a number of tents, and it's basically people that are demanding that the governments, all three levels of governments, do something about it. Uh, and you can quite understand that. Well, in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19, more than 3.9 million people now worldwide have been told to stay at home. But does that really work? And is that actually helping or hurting the spread of COVID-19? And it's all part of the greater issue, too, about not just have, putting a roof over somebody's head, but what kind of roof and, and the accommodation that they have. There is a, a great piece about this in the conversation uh, that talks about this, and it's called 10 Ways to Provide Adequate Housing in the COVID-19 Era. One of the co-authors of this, uh, Carolyn Wiseman, uh, joins us right now. She is the Department of Geography, Environment, Ge- Geometrics at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me. This is a great piece. I enjoyed reading it this morning because it's uh, something that I think is very germane to the discussion that we've had right now. Uh, and governments are wrestling with this. Uh, the problem I'm seeing from, from our perspective here, though, Professor, uh, this is a major problem that government should be addressing, but it doesn't seem to be near the top of the priority list when they're talking about COVID-19. Well, I think that the uh, priorities are shifting for a lot of governments, um, particularly in Canada, Since 2019, the right to housing has been enshrined in the National Housing Strategy Act. And that says that there's a goal of eliminating homelessness in Canada. And indeed, the Prime Minister has said that there's a goal of eliminating homelessness by 2030. Um, The CMHC, which is the main federal government agency, has said um, that they have a goal of adequate housing for all by 2030. So let's get it started. Let's get it jump-started during COVID because, as you say, the need has never been greater. The problem always seems to be the coordination between the three levels of government. Uh, you know, the, the federal governments, various federal governments would talk about that in throne speeches and, and during election campaigns, and you have provincial governments too. But the, the coordination never seemed to be there. Are we getting better at that now? I think we are getting better. I want to be cautiously optimistic. The federal government recently announced a rapid housing initiative and Hamilton and London are both going to be engaged in that. And that is the federal government working directly with municipalities. And that makes a lot of sense because, frankly, local governments are at the front line of both emergency shelters and long-term affordable housing initiatives. So they're the ones that have the most responsibility with this least funding, the fewest powers, and the fact that the federal government, which definitely has the most funding and the most powers, is willing to negotiate directly with local governments is a promising sign. 
Well, one of the things I liked about that, I remember when we talked to the minister as they were announcing the uh, the, the rapid housing initiative, uh, is is the very it, it's the title I think captures it. I mean, you got to do it now. Uh, you know, here's the money. You've got a time frame in which to do this, and it's really, I guess, it, it's 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 a call to action for the local municipalities to say we got to get our act together here. We've got to identify projects and get the cash for it. Yeah, and local governments, including London, have been part of a right to home working group where they're saying. This is what we want to do. This is how senior levels of government need to help us do these things. So just to give one example, evictions are a really big problem in Ontario. That's the provincial government's responsibility, but they have to start working with municipalities to prevent homelessness uh, increasing faster than it can be addressed by initiatives like the Rapid Housing Initiative. Housing stock has always been a problem, and, and one of the reasons for that, uh, at least at the local level that we've seen anyway in Hamilton and, and frankly in London, the, the work we've done there, is there has to be some sort of incentive uh, to, to get the private sector involved in this, to say, yeah, we can build this. Uh, and I, and, and there, I'm not trying to put them out as, as you know people that are only selfish, etc., but there's got to be a reason for them to do that. Uh, and governments always seem reticent to, uh, to offer that sort of incentive before. Uh, it, does that have to be part of this package? I think incentives for um, the private sector has to be part of the package. Another part of the package is just scaling up nonprofit initiatives, co-ops, uh, community housing, um, uh, government, um, uh, public housing uh, need to be scaled up. They were being built at the rate of about 10,000 homes per year in the 60s and 70s and into the early 80s. And we need to see that kind of production of a whole range of nonprofit housing scaling up to those kinds of numbers now, or, or more, of course, to meet the deficit that's been caused by 30 years of inaction. You talk in, in the uh, the piece, 10 Ways to Provide Adequate Housing uh, in the COVID-19 Era, uh, you talk about the encampments and you talk about the people that, as, as you say, are now displaced. Uh, they have no place to go. Uh, you know, it's, it's all well and good to issue a stay-at-home order, but if you have no home, uh, where do you go in a circumstance like this? And, you know, it's Canada and it's getting cold here. Uh, yep. how, how do we handle this? How do we get people from those tents to someplace where they're safe? Well, um, look, there's no completely instant fixes, but the city of Vancouver's managed to create 600 home, modular homes in about a year and a half, and uh, they're continuing to scale that up. And those are absolutely, um, you know, indistinguishable three-story buildings from any other kind of building. They're just factory built, and so they're built a lot faster. And that's one of the technologies that's being promoted by the Rapid Housing Initiative. So I think that um, buying up hotels, buying up um, uh, rooming houses to keep them affordable, um, buying up, in some cases, commercial buildings and converting them to housing are all pretty quick mechanisms, and so is modular housing. That's an interesting twist on this that uh, heretofore hasn't been discussed a great deal. Uh, we don't have enough housing stock. I think we can all agree on that. But I don't necessarily know that we don't have enough buildings. It's just we have buildings that are sitting empty right now that, uh, yep. uh, you know, that could be. And we've, we've had the debate in Hamilton. I know they've had it in London, too, about vacant buildings, as you say, old factories, whatever the case may be, uh, which I, I guess is actually one of the, the incentives for the Rapid Housing Initiative is to, is to retrofit some of those buildings. 
Yeah, it's faster to take an existing building and turning it into housing than it is to build a new building, particularly with permits and things like that. And the federal government used to fund acquisitions of existing buildings um, and then didn't for a long time. And this is the first introduction back into an acquisition strategy. So there's some exciting things happening at all three levels of government. And to some extent, our global policy scan has shown that COVID has created a bit of a jolt for um, some governments, but not just Canada. Um, there's some interesting things happening in Australia, the U.S., uh, Europe, etc. The challenge is that COVID, with its economic slowdown, is also creating a lot of risk of homelessness. And so these short-term eviction moratoria, many of which have lapsed, like in Ontario, they need to be extended for the entire length of COVID. Or, as I say, we're going to end up producing homelessness faster than we're fixing it. Well, we saw that in Ontario, didn't we? I mean, they yeah. instituted this during, you know, the first wave, uh, and they, they put a sunset clause on it. Well, the day after that, of course, you had a whole bunch of people that were evicted. Uh, now, you know, this uh, eviction orders. The, the yeah. day after the eviction moratoria ended, and from what I hear, the landlord tenant board is just acting like an eviction factory right now, and it's just it's not fair to people to say we're going to let. Um, the, the debt you're in increase and then we're going to sock you with a bill kind of thing. So really the provincial government needs to look at um, what it's doing right now and stop it in terms of evictions. And, and everybody, I think, ha- Professor, has to be at the table during that discussion, don't they? I mean, because I, I know that, you know, we, we're, we're looking at this t- as tenant-centric, and, and we have to be because those are the people that are out on the street. But, you know, the, the landlords have, have a responsibility, and they have bills to pay, too. And, that, you know, they're yeah. saying, hey, wait a second. Uh, the, the government's got to look at it this from a holistic standpoint and say, look, at you know, we, we can't just tweak this here and, and, and tweak it here. Uh, we've got to look at a wholesome solution here that's, that's going to be beneficial to everybody. Absolutely. And and one simple solution is providing direct renter assistance, mm-hmm. which then goes to the uh, landlord. And it's a lot cheaper to provide direct renter assistance uh, than it is to deal with people once they've become evicted. So it's an economically efficient solution that isn't at the moment being done in Ontario. But the Prime Minister made a very similar announcement to that just last week to do with commercial enterprises. Why don't we yeah. do it with residential? That's a really good question. <laughs> I'll ask him next <laughs> next time Please I'm talking do. to him. I, I, by the way, I, just on this on this very same theme, though, from from my time on, on Hamilton Council years ago, uh, there's one element that I, the Ontario government could do that I think would expedite an awful lot of this, and and that's the the, the policy about reclaiming old buildings. Uh, and you know, the schools mm-hmm. boards right across the province of Ontario right now have a lot of excess properties, uh, but and the city does have first right at them, but they have to pay for them. And, and the concern yep. that a lot of people have, as you know, Professor, is, wait a minute, we the taxpayers, we already paid for that building. We, you know, it was, we paid, it was our you know, school taxes that paid for it, but why do we have to pay for it again with tax money? I mean, there should be a, an easier transition uh, for buildings that the school board certainly doesn't need anymore, uh, but at the same time, the city could buy without having to pay market price for them. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that government land is a real key. I mean, I'm talking to you today from Ottawa where there's mm-hmm. ads of um, near vacant government land, including 
um, you know, land that's been taken for 30 years for potential government buildings. Um, in Hamilton, in London, there are, is school property, there's excess uh, property for uh, highway extensions, there, there's all kinds of um, property that's lying vacant, and there's also properties like libraries and um, community health centers that could have three or four stories of building uh, affordable housing on top of them. So using government land doesn't cost any money to um, governments. They just have to write off the, the cost of the land. They could lease the land. And that, again, is happening in a number of cities around Canada using community land trusts that will keep that land affordable in perpetuity. Well, exactly, because you know, if you have to build new, uh, that's a rather costly process. I mean, it has to be serviced. Yep. There's a whole lot of other things, plus the construction itself. you got a building yep. that's been sitting there for some time that's already got all the services in it. All it needs is tenants. And the, I guess the frustration for this, Professor, is we've been doing that for years, but the people that intend to buy those buildings uh, turn them into condos, uh, yep. which is well and good, and they look wonderful, and we've seen some great retrofits, uh, and that's all well and good for that part of the market. But what about for the affordable housing market? I mean, government should actually learn from the private sector and say, hey, we can do that too. Yeah. I think that all levels of government really need housing targets that will work to um, eliminate homelessness and um, also the stress of people who are paying 30 or 50% of their income or 80% of their income on, on rent right now. And that the solutions are there. Part of the purpose of this policy scan is to say there's a lot of good ideas out there that could be adopted. And, you know, as I say, I think that governments are wrapping their head around uh, housing in a way that I have not seen in the past. And I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, yep. One line here that really caught my attention, too, in the piece that where many European cities are now banning short-term rentals like Airbnbs and expropriating those vacant properties for use as public housing. I know Toronto, the city of Toronto, had some problems with those and essentially have banned Airbnbs from downtown. Uh, you know, you'll be a renter. You're going to be a renter. You're not going to be somebody who's going to rent the property out. Uh, so we're, they're... they're they're identifying some of the problems and they're developing policies for that. Uh, but uh, the thrust of the last piece of, of part of the article, though, Professor, is the political will. And uh, the, the excuse has always been, we can't afford that. Look at the problems we're at. Look at the deficit we have right now. We can't afford to do this. Are we over that now? Have, have governments come to the point now where they understand that we can't afford not to? Well, I hope so. Uh, it costs about 500 a month to keep... Um, uh, a family in a permanent home, and it costs about three to ten thousand dollars a month to keep an individual in um, uh, a shelter or a hospital setting or prison. Uh, and those are the alternatives. So um, you know, hopefully, we're going to choose the the just solution, the the um, uh, humane solution, as well as the economically and environmentally wise solution. Well, and I know that in a short-term basis, we do talk about shelter spaces, and those are wonderful on a short-term basis. Uh, but what we're looking here, and I think what the the thrust of the piece here is that we need long-term solutions to this as well. I mean, shelters yeah. are great if you have you, you you get a bed for the night, but I mean, it's you know, if it's minus three outside, you, you don't usually stay in the shelter through the day. You have to go down to the street. Uh, yeah. So it's 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 not really solving the problem at all. Shelters are an emergent. They're intended to be an emergency solution. Mm -hmm but they've become long-term non-solutions. Um, they've been acting as 
places that people return have to return to night after night and really permanent housing is the solution well sure i mean in hamilton and in london right now we've had the problem where municipal governments have had to house a number of these people in these tent encampments in hotels uh and that's costly i mean because you know Mm -hmm. you're paying market rate for those and they have to understand that if they make a long-term investment into a new facility uh, they 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 win it's a financial boon for them in the long run yeah there was a hotel in whitehorse um that uh, the federal government, the territorial government, the local government of Whitehorse dithered over for three years. COVID hit, boom, the federal government provided the funds to buy the hotel and turn it into a 40-unit residence for um, uh, uh, female survivors of domestic violence. That kind of political will needs to be replicated all across Canada. Well, let's uh, make a point to try to email the piece here to just about everybody, uh, 368 people in the House of Commons, because I think we have to have this conversation. Uh, check Thank it out you. yourselves. I, I want to encourage our listeners. It's in the conversation. You can Google the conversation. Uh, it's 10 ways to provide adequate housing in the COVID-19 era. Uh, Professor Weitzman, thank you so much for the piece, and thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. Great talking with you, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some concerning numbers uh, in just about every municipality, of course. Uh, number of cases in the London area linked to COVID-19 outbreaks at the University Hospital rose by four on Wednesday. The uh, Middlesex London Health Unit says officials worked to test about 400 workers in the hospital who may have been exposed. They say three of the 18 new cases uh, reported Wednesday are linked to a couple of outbreaks at the University Hospital. Uh, one other uh, case uh, tied to the cluster wasn't included because the person was actually from the London area. But when you get into a healthcare environment like this, and we've, you know, for the as lo- the length of the, the pandemic now, we've been talking about the the bravery and dedication of the frontline workers, and especially in the healthcare field. How do you control something like this, and what are the repercussions? I also want to talk a little bit about uh, some news today we got about the AstraZeneca manufacturing uh, uh, vaccine. Uh, apparently, there's some concern now about the testing that was done on that, uh, and uh, should we be concerned about that? To talk about all this, so please to welcome back to the program Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid, who is the medical doctor and health policy expert. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us again. Hope you're doing well. Same to you. Thanks for having me. One of the things I guess we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about is the impact that COVID is having on healthcare workers. I mean, they're overworked, they're exhausted. I mean, we've seen those stories and 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 tried to cover them as best we can. But uh, when you get an outbreak like this in, in a hospital, for instance, at Western right now at the University Hospital, uh, I guess a two-part question, Doctor. First of all, how do you control it in that environment? And B, what kind of an impact does it have on the staff? Well, I mean, how do you control it? It's about reducing the number of COVID-19 in the community period. The less numbers that the hospital see, the less cases of COVID-19, the better it is on everybody involved, primarily the healthcare providers who are really struggling, as you rightly pointed out, to keep up with the pace of what's going on. Because, you know, it's not only, uh, it's not only just dealing with COVID-19 patients, but you also have other patients in the hospital who require urgent care and they require hands-on care that involves a multidisciplinary team. That makes it very difficult for you know the staff to make sure that they're delivering the care that they used to pre-COVID in the middle of a crisis. So, as, which I guess is one of the reasons why you know as we've talked to some of the administrative staff in hospitals, uh, they're noticing there's a reticence for some people who may have to go into the hospital for something uh, because they're afraid that they're going to actually be exposed to it. They're going to come out of there with COVID nineteen. 
Yeah, I mean, we've heard about this early on. Uh, we we knew that people were worried about, for example, not just hospitals, but also assessment centers. So yeah. there was a, a sense people were worried like, oh, I don't want to go get tested because if I do, uh, then I might actually just get it when I'm there. It's the, the evidence hasn't really shown that to be true. For the most part, you know, hospitals are a safe environment and infection control at its best. Uh, and so that, that, that there is no necessarily a correlation between you going to the hospital for any other services and then for some reason getting COVID-19. We also have to remind everybody that the message from hospitals right now is don't come in unless it's urgent, right? So, mm-hmm. And the point from that is that we don't want to overburden to your question earlier about the healthcare providers. We really want to make sure that we give them the space and the time for them not to be overburdened. Well, and one of the causes of that, of course, is if one of them, for instance, starts showing symptoms or just gets plain down, you know, tired. Uh, there's a staffing shortage there, and that's a, a concern, which just makes extra work for everybody else. I, I can assure, and I think you and I had this conversation back in the summertime, Doctor, uh, as, as somebody who actually had a medical procedure done after the uh, the lockdown uh, back in the summertime. Uh, the hospitals take every possible precaution from the minute you walk through the door uh, to make sure that, uh, that you're going to be safe and that everybody in that building is going to be safe. Absolutely. I mean, that's the part of the reason why we spend so much on hospitals. Actually, our biggest budget goes to hospitals. It's to ensure they're functioning at the highest quality possible and, and ensuring patient safety is at the core of how every hospital operates. So, you know, that's to say is that, you know, if you need urgent care at a hospital, you most certainly can go. Uh, anybody else should be looking at primary care providers or family doctors and telehealth uh, options for accessing primary care. Let me ask you about vaccines. If I can just pivot for a second here. The story today about the AstraZeneca manufacturing error raises some questions about the vaccine. Uh, and I guess it had something to do with the, the, the dosage uh, that was actually in there. And, and the, the story, as, the, story, as the, the news about this particular vaccine broke, was that they did this differently. They actually had some people that got a smaller dose in the first vaccine and then a larger dose in the, in the booster shot a, a few months later. And now they're questioning about the efficacy of that. And, and, the, uh, and, and I'm wondering, does this skew the results? Does this, does this raise some questions about the vaccine itself, or is this just a blip? Well, I think that, you know, it's going to raise concerns in the general public about the safety of vaccine. But I go back to what we've always said is that in Canada, for us Canadians, Health Canada is one of the strongest and toughest regulatory bodies in the world. And so when we, they do approve something, it would have gone through stringent uh, sort of guidelines or checklists to make sure it is safe for public consumption. So when the vaccine for COVID-19 does become applicable or available for us to take, it, it will not happen haphazardly. It will happen when Health Canada has actually signed sort of a, an approval stamp on it to say this is a good vaccine. It is safe for public consumption. We can trust that when it does become available. But the question is really now, uh, can we get enough data from the clinical trials that are undergoing for COVID-19 to see if they are actually safe? Are they basically as they go through this this investigative process, and and we know that by the way we're talking about these three that have come forward. There are many others, and and we're anticipating a lot more of those are going to come forward too. Are they following the same protocol, the same steps in in going through that that stage? Yeah, they are. I mean, you know, there was an expedited or like a fast track process mm-hmm. for them in the U.S. to get. Uh, approval for the vaccine a little bit faster but th- th- that's i think what dr tam was talking about today or yesterday where she said that even though they're going through a fast track process eventually they still have to go through our processes in canada for us to approve them at health canada's level 
And, and that's an interesting twist because when we've talked about other pharmaceuticals over the years, Doctor, uh, Health Canada seems to, I'm not going to say drag their heels, I think be, uh, become more stringent than, uh, than some others, including, you know, some American uh, agencies about, uh, you know, giving a thumbs up to a, to a new product such as this. Uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. I think that they, I'd rather be, you know, cautious than, than to say, whoops, maybe we went a little too fast on this. So, uh, I, I guess as Canadians, we have to accept the fact that, you know, the, the, the U.S. may be moving a little faster on this, but uh, they have variations on the same rules that we follow. Exactly, they do. They have very different variation how they approve things than we do here. They tend to have a faster process just by virtue of the way their system is built up. Uh, we're a national healthcare system. By that, everything goes through Health Canada. We have very different processes of how we sort of authorize things to come into our market. And yes, people will have a counter argument of saying that, uh, you know, a drug, X drug in the U.S. was available much faster than it was here. And the counter argument to, uh, to that from a Canadian perspective is that that drug first to become available in Canada, we have to go through supply and demand, and we also have to go through a very stringent regulatory process to approve it. And, and studying the data, and I know you talked about that the other day when uh, when you were on with Scott, uh, on the Scott Thompson show on CHML, about uh, the, the the data and because as as excited as we should be about AstraZeneca and and, and Moderna and Pfizer uh, and and who else come along, uh, folks like yourself and other experts, I want to they're going to want to look at those numbers. You know, a press release is fabulous, uh, but it doesn't give you the the vital information that you need to make a determination about it. Exactly, and so we saw that with the Pfizer when they came out with their announcement about ninety percent effective with their vaccine. Us people in health policy and practitioners in the field. We've all looked at the peer-reviewed literature. We actually examined the data to see how much of that is true. And yes, okay, it was 90% effective, but it was on a very small number of people. Uh, it was on the preclinical trials. So we're still waiting for further data to analyze that. And that's the key message here. You know, it's one thing when the media reports it's 90% effective, but when, when the researchers dig deep into it, they realize that it's not necessarily means that we're going to be rolling it out tomorrow. We have to give it time. And I think the Canadian government, including uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, is already alluding to that and, and sort of preparing the public that, you know, don't just think that the minute those pharmaceutical companies say we have the vaccine, it's available, that we're going to get it. We also have to dig deep to make sure it is safe for our consumption. And, and those tests aren't completed yet, are they? I mean, no, you know, a lot of the questions that you talked to us about back in the summertime before we even knew that one of these was imminent, uh, I think are still out there. You know, how, how effective is it going to be and for how long? Uh, you know, are you going to need a booster shot every year? Are you going to need one every six months? Uh, are you good for life? Uh, are, you know, we don't know the long-term side effects, obviously, because these tests have only been going on uh, for less than a year. So there's, there's still a lot of question marks here. There is still a lot of question marks, but there's also positive news. And the positive news is that we've never, ever seen uh, such a scale of investment into the development of a vaccine uh, as we are seeing with COVID-19. I mean, and that's great news because it tells us that the science is trying to keep up. Uh, and so hopefully, uh, you know, we will have an effective, safe vaccine. I mean, it's really, I think actually I will change that and say it has to be safe first before it's effective. Because the last thing we want is to be injecting people with something that's not 100% effective and safe. 
Let me ask you, I don't, I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds here about, about medical terminology, uh, because that's your wheelhouse, not mine. Uh, but the vaccine itself and, and the, the way these things are being developed, if I, if I read this properly, and this is based on what I saw from the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, press releases about this, uh, it, I guess historically when we get a vaccine, and, and I'm getting my flu shot later on today, uh, basically they inject you with a little bit of the, the virus and, and you build up antibodies to it. That's why you feel crappy for a day or two, I guess. Uh, and that's why it works. If I understand this properly, uh, the two, at least two of the vaccines that are being developed now, doctor, it's actually developing, a pro- it, it gives you the ability to develop a protein that fights the virus, attacks the virus in your body. Correct. And it's using something called a messenger mRNA, which okay. is a new technology that hasn't really been used before. So it's very innovative uh, and, and, and technically supposed to be safe. So we're not using a live virus sort of for you to build the uh, the antibodies towards it, we're using the mRNA, which is the, the genetic prototype of the virus itself, to help you develop the proteins or the antibodies to fight it in the future. What do you think about that technology? I mean, it's, that's exactly to my point earlier. It's incredible that we're able to do this at the at the speed that we're doing it. I think it's science keeping up with technology. I mean, we, we have to remember that it's governments around the world investing incredible amount of money into this technology. And, and, and again, we haven't seen this before. So I'm hoping that this actually opens the door for other innovative vaccines that we desperately need for other diseases out there or for future diseases that might come our way. I mean, the thing is, we know now from uh, studies around climate change that the rise of pandemics and viruses is going to increase over time. We're going to see more of those, you know, as I like to call them, odd, never seen before viruses that will, you know, change how we live our lives. And we need to have technology and the science to keep up with them. And I think COVID-19 is just the first of many to come in the future. Well, and it's fascinating because of the new way this is happening. And I think you told us that way back in the springtime. Uh, these are coronaviruses. And, you know, there's a variation, you know, whether we're talking about this one or the next one or the ones that we've seen, whether it's SARS or anything else. This is, this is a family. Uh, and we can expect it. As you mentioned, there's going to be another one at some point. But if this vaccine and the, terminal, the methodology used to develop it uh, proves to be effective, uh, you could probably uh, modify that to a certain extent for any other pandemic that came along, couldn't you? Exactly. And I think that every vaccine we develop, we learn something better about how to develop them, how to make them safe, what is the threshold for safety. It's all part of the evolving science of uh, vaccine development. And, you know, vaccines do work. I mean, there are skeptics out there that will tell you vaccines can cause adverse reactions. Some do, but for the most part, the ones that we get approved, the ones that are uh, under Health Canada's jurisdiction are safe for our consumption. And we've been using them for a long time and they prevented deaths around the world. I mean, millions of deaths have been prevented because of vaccine. So the science behind vaccine development is there and, and, and people are you know, entitled to go and view and review that evidence. And our job is to sort of disseminate that knowledge. I mean, we saw that uh, something very telling, uh, Bill, about how people actually look at vaccine. If they take the news over social media, they don't trust the vaccine safety. But when we communicate it through public health officials, uh, through government websites, through the media, outsourced uh, data, then, then people start developing a better trust in the vaccine. So it's really a communications thing, because I, I was worried about some of those numbers that I saw, too, about the number of people that, that were, you know, a little trepidatious about actually getting the vaccine. Is it going to work? Is it a, that it wouldn't be on the market if it wasn't going to work. I mean, uh, 
I, 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 and there's always going to be anti-vaxxers. I get that. And, and, you know, I'm hoping it's a smaller and smaller percentage all the time, but they're still out there. But it just seems as if there's a lot of people that are nervous about this one, uh, simply because, well, I guess for many of us, this is the first pandemic we lived through. And I guess there's a, a concern here about is this actually going to be effective? And what, at what point is there a number, doctor, that we have to look at to say this percentage of the population has to be uh, vaccinated for it to become effective the, to develop that, that herd immunity that we've talked about? I think there is multiple theories around that. I mean, nobody actually has a precise number yet, uh, but I think that there is a, so, so, sort of a threshold. And it, honestly, it comes down to a simple, a simple logic, which is that it is, the number is when we see reduction in number of COVID-19 cases overall. Uh, and, and I just want to say something very important, Bill, here. I also don't like the narrative of blaming people who don't trust vaccines. I'm not saying that's what we're doing here, but I'm conscious of people being attacked for their views on this. And as, as a science person myself, I believe in, in vaccines and their development. I don't expect everybody else to. My job is to disseminate the evidence and let you make your own decision. Uh, and I think that's important to say because I do understand why people are worried specifically about this COVID-19 vaccine. You know, it's new. We still don't know a lot about it. So I sympathize and I totally understand if our people out there listening to us right now are saying, hey, like, I really just don't trust this at this early stages. I, I can assure you that when it does become available through in, in Canada specifically, that Health Canada will have gone through many stringent steps to make sure it is safe for us to use. Well, in, in, in fairness, doctor, I, I, I think a lot of us, and, and probably I can include myself in that number, I was like that with the flu vaccine when they first started mm. to develop it some years ago. Like, really? Do you think that's really going to be effective? And, and I, I didn't, I took a pass on it the first year or two and then realized that I saw how efficient it was and how effective it was with other people. And, and I'm a believer now in it because I understand that. And uh, maybe, maybe it's just going to take a little time for people to, to, to develop a comfort level with this. Exactly. And like you said, I, I love that you said that. It took you some time to sort of see how it works with others, and then you made your own decision on it. And I think that's precisely it. I think that for the majority, uh, most Canadians are educated, and we, we appreciate science. And so the science is out there. Make sure you get it from verified sources. Read up on it yourself, and make your decision accordingly. Doctor, always reassuring to talk with you about this and to get some clarity on uh, some stuff that uh, is, well, very troubling for us. And you're absolutely right. A lot of the time we get, you know, half truths and social media beams that uh, that uh, throw us off the walk a little bit. And it's always great to have you on here to explain exactly what's happening. Thanks so much for this. Thanks. Good talking with you. Thank you, Dr. Khalid. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.